Today we're going to be looking at a couple of different passages of Scripture, Psalm 43 and 2 Chronicles 20. So if you want to have your fingers in those passages, we'll be flipping back and forth and looking at different things that are there. Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look into his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it has been proclaimed all around the world. We thank you that it's being proclaimed in Haiti today. We thank you that it's being proclaimed in Israel and Lebanon and even in Gaza. Lord, you are Lord of all the earth and Lord over all of the nations. And it's by your will that they exist. And we would pray as we look at these passages and experience some of the discouragement that we've felt the last couple of weeks because of the state of the world, that we'll find hope in you. In thy name we ask it, amen. A little over a week ago, Hamas terrorists broke through the walls of the Gaza Strip and slaughtered Israeli citizens who were living peacefully on the other side of the wall. Around 1,400 people, including elderly and infants, were killed in ways that can only be described as monstrous. Monstrous. Let me share some headlines of the past week or so. The U.S. Navy deployed a second carrier strike group to the Middle East. And then uh, we have an IDF negotiations officer. We have no other choice but to fight back. And we have been waiting relative to watching Israel prepare to put a land force into Gaza. And if you've been following the news at all, you recognize that the way Hamas has worked has created almost an impossible situation for going in to try to clean them out. We know from war history that the way they used to do it is you surround the place and starve them out. But then, of course, all the innocents are harmed with that as well. And it's repugnant to us. Biden went to visit Israel Wednesday in a show of support after the Hamas attack. And death came from sea and air and ground in the timeline of a surprise attack on Hamas, by Hamas on Israel. And then we have this reality. There was a former St. Paul teacher killed in the Israel attack. Now that's St. Paul, Minnesota. But we know that there were 34 Americans that were killed in that attack on Israelis, many of them dual citizens. Their murderous attack was without concern for 
nationality or race. They saw them all as part of Israel and Jewishness. Hamas has released their first video of a hostage held inside Gaza, and then actually they released a couple of hostages that were held, American hostages that were held, and that was a tactical move, we think, to try to slow down Israel's preparations and give them more time to uh, put more booby traps for the invasion. We had an IDF soldier on the front line say, this is America's war as well. And we all have a little bit of a sense that that may happen. That we may be drawn into this. And then you have more than a thousand rallied on Harvard's campus to free Palestine and ignore the attack on Israel and say that Israel was the bad guys in all of this. All of these headlines represent just a few of the stories run this last week that demonstrate that America is confronted by a hateful enemy that's hard to recognize, is without moral conscience, is zealous about bringing us down by any means possible. This enemy will hurt non-combatants, children, civilians without remorse. He's intent upon ruining America, killing Christians, Jews, Israel, and Western culture. He will lie, he will terrorize, he will threaten any target, and he will use people who will give their lives for this hatred. Never before in our history have we had to fight this kind of an enemy that was not a state-sponsored enemy. Now, World War II, we had to fight Germany, and then we discovered what they were doing. Any place on earth that an American walks, any center of any kind of American or Christian activity in any country could be a target for these extremists. It is notorious, it is dangerous, it's unfair, it has little to do with real political policy, Republican or Democrat, and everything to do with hatred of Jews and Israel and our friendship with them. And because of the nature of this kind of battle, nationally we're playing catch-up. Personally, we can be discouraged and frightened and stressed and frustrated at leadership and the personal cost to our freedoms and convenience. How can we face such challenges? Should we be preparing ourselves as survivalists? Should we be joining the army or forming militias? There was a young man, I think he was from Wisconsin, that went to join the IDF and was killed this week near Lebanon. Where do we go to find a sense of peace and joy? How can we make sense of this and how can we enjoy God in the face of these things which are really beyond our comprehension? How should we pray? How can we worship and find joy in the Lord when all these things are going on? God wants us to do that no matter what the circumstances are. And Psalm 43 gives us a good model for how it is possible in light of an intractable enemy and a sense of being helpless to do anything about them personally. That's where this war on terror puts us. And I believe that's the circumstance that this psalm was used in. 
Let's see the description of the psalmist of the circumstances that he's facing. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Here the psalmist is facing an ungodly nation. He's facing deceitful and wicked men. He feels that God, whom he's always trusted in as his stronghold, has somehow rejected him. And he's sad. He's actually in mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. Well, what were the specific circumstances where this psalm may have been used? This psalm is attributed along with those around it to the sons of Korah. And we understand that the sons of Korah were groups from the priestly class that David set apart to be singers for tabernacle or temple worship. They had gifts and skills as musicians and prophets. In other words, they could take God's word and proclaim it through music. They could help the people remember the precepts and the ways of God by arranging his word into memorable music. We're familiar with that kind of a ministry. As a matter of fact, some of these very psalms have been set to music in this day and age, and we love them. You know that chorus that we sing, As the Deer, is from Psalm 42. There are a couple of possible biblical historical backdrops where the ideas expressed in this psalm may have been used. One is when David was fleeing from Absalom, as Absalom sought to take the kingdom by force from his father, and this mutiny from his son had David deeply discouraged. But I prefer to think that this psalm was used in 2 Chronicles 20. Here we specifically have one of the sons of Korah mentioned by name as the one through whom God gave an answer to King Jehoshaphat's troubles. It says in verse 14, 2 Chronicles 20, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. Asaph is one of the sons of Korah. Let me give you the essential details to this historical setting. Jehoshaphat was king. He was the fourth king of Judah following the death of Solomon when the kingdom was divided. He reigned for 25 years, and this event may have happened about 20 years into his reign. He's probably about 55 years old. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He had renewed the teaching and study of God's word to the common people. He had removed the cultic religious worship that was in a continual snare from, for the nation. He had instituted reforms in the courts that brought justice into his land, and God had blessed him with wealth and honor. The Ammonites, Moabites, and Meunites joined together to make war against him. Now these people are descendants of Lot and Ishmael. Since they were distant cousins of the Israelites through Abraham, God had not allowed Israel to destroy them when they took the land of Canaan. They have apparently mustered a vast army, and Jehoshaphat is overwhelmed with fear. He can just imagine being overrun by these tribes. His prayer expresses this fear, and you can see how it parallels the concept of this psalm, that an ungodly nation is out to destroy a godly one, that they are 
personally helpless and not wanting to disobey the Lord by being hateful themselves, but also not wanting to be destroyed. They need God's intervention. Here's his prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine... We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. And see how they're repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God! Will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Remember the first request of Psalm 43 is for God to render a judgment that will vindicate the righteous. And as we would seek to pray to God in relation to the war on terrorism that we're on the precipice of, I can see parallels in our own circumstances. Of course, our nation is not perfect or perfectly righteous. It is, however, still the greatest sending nation of Christian missionaries in the world. It still stands for righteousness and human rights and justice and fair treatment of people. We do not arbitrarily behead innocent people we capture but our enemy will. We do not send children on suicide missions to kill other innocent people. Well, our enemy will. We do not teach hatred of those who have a different religion than we have. Well, our enemy does. We do not teach our children a philosophy of hatred while our enemy cultivates it. We do not separate men and women into classes of privileged and underclassed while our enemy does. We do not seek genocide of people, groups, or races while our enemy does. The only answer that Hamas has as a solution is that Israel would be completely annihilated and cease to exist as a people group. They have the same goals Hitler had. That's what they mean when they're screaming in the streets from the river to the sea. Annihilate Israel. We have many ways in spite of our very own real sins in our culture in which we can justifiably ask God to vindicate us in a war on this terror. Well, what are the personal circumstances of a situation like this and how are they expressed in this psalm? Verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? In what way was Jehoshaphat downcast and disturbed in his soul? Well, 2 Chronicles 23 says he was alarmed, or in the King James it says he feared. He had a genuine sense of fear. He knew he and his people were being threatened. And he feels weak, verse 12. We have no power to face this army. He feels it's not fair. Did we, we did not destroy them when we could have and see how they're repaying us. In verse 12, he says, we don't know what to do. 
as our nation faces these circumstances. Do you ever feel that way? I know I do. On the one hand, we have a mighty army. But because we're bound by decency and righteousness, we won't take a rebellious city like Gaza and drop an atomic bomb on it, though it would certainly take care of the problem. But because it would kill innocent people along with the guilty, we won't do it. We have not used the overwhelming force that we would have enabled us to get rid of Muslim clerics and uh, organize hateful militias and hide out in mosques. We know that our enemy has no such compunctions. We know that one of the tactics of Hamas is to use human shields of their own people. If they were able to get their hands on an atomic device and deliver it into a major city in the U.S. or Israel, we know they would do it. We play by different rules, and it's often frustrating. Engaging in warfare in which you're claiming the moral high ground is dependent upon a belief that God will reward those who claim the moral high ground. If we have forsaken our God, then we have no foundation for our protection against this kind of an enemy. We must understand that you treat people who are powerless according to who you are, not according to who they are. Or else you become just like them. The result is that we can feel downcast and disturbed. We can feel like we're cursed by the world for not using force against them and we're cursed if we ignore them. It feels like a no-win situation. When you're in those kinds of a situation, you say the same thing Jehoshaphat said. We don't know what to do. I think our politicians are kind of saying, well, we don't know what to do. We can deploy lots of soldiers over there and military might over there, but I don't know if we're really going to use it. We don't know what to do. How does this psalm help us to find hope for joy in spite of these kinds of circumstances? How can we still come to God with expectations of delight in him? It says in Psalm 43, 5b, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Jehoshaphat quickly did this. We see that one of the first things he did when he heard of this vast army was coming against him was to call the people to fast and pray. We know why he did this. He was being obedient to a promise God had made in regard to this temple that his great-great-grandfather Solomon had built. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 through 16. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. He could hope in God because he believed God's promise to meet him at the temple and hear and answer prayer. Now, we don't have the same temple he had. We have a different temple, and we have promises in regard to that temple that are better than his. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? 
and that God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. By the way, the you in that verse is plural, you all in the Greek. So you all are that temple. What promises in regard to prayer do we have from Jesus in the church age? Well, John 15, 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears what, us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So first of all, we can have the hope that we can always go to God and know that we have an audience with him and that he will hear our prayers. So what should we ask and what do we want that would be his will? Jehoshaphat was dealing with a national crisis and he asked God to judge and let him know what to do. Notice what the psalmist prays. Send forth your light and your truth and let them guide me. Whatever we're going to do, either personally or if we have a responsibility for a national decision making, we want to make it line up with God's light and truth. I think it's entirely appropriate to pray for our leaders that they would seek light and truth from God and his word to know what to do. You agree with that? We know that the Holy Spirit will illuminate the word of God to lead us into truth and give us light. This is part of why the Lord sent the Holy Spirit following his ascension into heaven. The second expectation is the hope of fellowship with God. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Notice that it is God's truth and light that guide and bring the worshiper into fellowship with God. This circumstance that Jehoshaphat was facing was causing revival in the land. Everyone was coming together and fasting and in seeking the Lord. I think it's an appropriate plea for us in this day and age. Would Christians come together and pray and seek God's face? Would we fast and repent of sin and seek God's truth and perspective on what we personally should do to be engaged in the battle for good, to win over evil in this very real time? Are we asking God to vindicate us? Are we asking God to show the moral superiority of Judaism and Christianity over Islam? Are we using the despondency, the fear, the discouragement of the news to drive us closer to God? Or are we just trusting in our armies? Do we realize that there is a clash of cultural ideas going on and the reality of the power of our God is being challenged by those who worship another God or no God? Do we ask God to reveal his truth and light and ask him to let that truth and light lead us into his presence in worship? Do we pray for our universities that have been infiltrated with teachers and groups that promote anti-Semitism? Do we as God ask God for revival in the places of learning 
that were originally begun to train pastors. God, would you open their eyes? I think we can expect him to say yes if we approach him with that kind of a prayer. Then it says, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. In Jehoshaphat's day, worship of God was the, at the altar of sacrifice at the temple. Now we come to a different altar. We are privileged to come to the true altar, the mercy seat in heaven, through the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The psalmist calls God his joy and delight. God is his joy and delight because he has recognized the potential loss of contact that he could have if this enemy is not defeated. There is the joy and delight of the relief when a threat to something we love is taken away and the treasured activity and possession is restored in security and peace. Well, what needs to be done to find this delight? It says, send forth your light and truth. Let them guide me. There's a commitment in this statement to follow the guidance that God gives, to be obedient to God's illumination and direction. We saw that Jehoshaphat had that. Listen to what God revealed to him through these sons of Korah, the, the temple choir. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be coming up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. And after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. What a scene. He sends the choir ahead of the army to meet the enemy. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. God told him very specifically that he was going to fight this battle for them, but he wanted them to go out to the battlefield. So in obedience to the Lord's direction, Jehoshaphat sent the choir out in front of the army they went out in faith, praising God for the splendor of his holiness and for his love for them. They believed God would give them victory without them having to fight the battle. Their faith 
dictated their actions. Do we let our faith in God and his word dictate our actions in the face of these national troubles? We need to. We need to let our knowledge of his holiness and his love for us dictate to us what we are to do. He will reveal that by his Holy Spirit. And the first action that helps us delight in God is to be obedient to the light and truth that he reveals to us. And then the second is to come to the altar of God. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Coming to the altar of God means several things. It means that I keep short accounts with my own sin. As God makes me aware of it, I confess my sin and repent of it. I use the atonement of Jesus Christ to cover my sin. It means I come with a forgiving heart. Christ died not only for my sins, but for the sins committed against me. That is why Jesus demands of us to forgive those who have trespassed against us. We waste half the power of the atonement if we don't forgive those who have sinned against us. It means I focus on God and not ask God to focus on me. I don't come to worship asking, well, what am I going to get out of this? I come asking God, what can I do to respond to you? What can I give? How can I serve? How can I praise? How can I please you and make your name bigger in my own heart? Notice there are seven reverences to God in just verse 4. We must understand that by having the promises of God forgiving us and being willing to meet us to receive our worship, we are already blessed. And we commit to praise. Now the phrase translated, I will praise you with the harp, is literally a country and western phrase. Well, let me explain that to you. In the original, it's literally, I will praise you with the twang. And there's no music that twangs quite like country and western, isn't that right? <laughs> Whatever you have to praise God with, use it. If you play an instrument, make noise on it to God's glory. If you have a voice, sing loudly with it to God's glory. Let your whole being rejoice in him. And the last activity we can do to engage in the delight in God in the face of a depressing national situation is to put salvation on our faces. Let me give you verse 5 in a couple different translations. Uh, King James, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Or uh, in the literal Bible, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why do you moan within me? Hope in God, for still I will thank him, the salvations of my face and my God. We must understand that the word translated salvations in the Old Testament is the word that refers to Jesus, it's Yeshua. It means salvation, and it's also the word that was used for the name of Joshua, and in the New Testament, Jesus. I need Jesus on my face if I'm going to the light in God. His kindness, his holiness, his compassion, his righteousness, his demeanor, his truth, his mercy, his justice, his love, 
need to reflect through my face to a world around me that God is on the throne and he is in control. How can that happen? I think it happens when we take all that we are and bring it to Jesus. We do all those cliches of Christianity, you know. We lay our all on the altar, we yield to the Holy Spirit, we wait on the Lord. And I want to close this message with giving us a very Middle Eastern thing to do. We're going to read a portion of Psalm 118 antiphonally. Now Psalm 118 was already mentioned in uh, 2 Chronicles 20 as what the choir sang when they went out before the army. And so you can, uh, go, there we go, Psalm 118. Now you can see yellow and white, okay? So from this side over, you're the yellow. And from this side over, you're the white. Okay? Can everybody see? All right. So it will go like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Now that's not too bad. But you haven't been watching the Middle East. The way a crowd gathers in the Middle East to do it is they all stand. And then they raise their fist. So I want you to stand and raise your fist. We are speaking the word of God. All right? We're going to start over. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered me by setting me free. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. Amen. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that it encourages our hearts and strengthens our resolve to follow you, to follow your truth, your guidance, to come to the altar with our issues and our problems and our sins and to trust in you. In thy name we ask it. Amen.